Hey, you know, when I was uh, growing up, there's something we like to do as kids, and we like to race. I don't know what it is about little boys, but we love to just race. And all you had to do was get a couple of kids together, and one guy say, on your mark, get in that line. And they said, get set, go. They say, go, you just tear out as fast as you can, everything moving to get over to that finish line. And we just do that. We do it at recess. And so we've been elementary school, be down there at the playground, and, and all of a sudden, a bunch of guys around there say, hey, let's race. And you line people up on your mark, get set, go. You get home, do your homework, get out there riding your bikes around, find a flat, uh, flat piece of land, you know what they're gonna do? You're gonna race on your bikes. And, uh, and there's always someone that's going to tell you, okay, get on your mark, get set, go. Then you start taking off as fast as you can. When you think about on your mark, get set, go, you think about urgency and immediacy. This is it, man, we're going on into it right now. Well, the series that we're moving into is we are looking at the book of Mark. And as we look at the book of Mark, it is a gospel that is unique from the other three gospels. It is a gospel that deals with action. It really does, deals more with Jesus' actions, even more than his words. And in the book of Mark, there is a word, a Greek word that's translated immediately that is used over 40 times. In fact, if you added up all the times this word was used in the New Testament, it wouldn't even equal the number of times that Mark has in his 16 chapters of his gospel immediately. There's action. It moves fast. And as it's moving fast, it's letting us know that Jesus has a mission. He's not going to be tardy in this mission. He is going to be decisive, and he is a man of action. And there's decisiveness, there's action, there's movement, and this happens throughout all the book of Mark. It is an incredible gospel. And so we are going to walk through the book of Mark and this entire sense of urgency is going to be a part of these next number of weeks that we're together on this. Because we want you to see that out of scripture there is an urgency that we confront our culture. There's an urgency that we love our neighbor. There's an urgency that we stand for our faith and there's an urgency that we share our faith. And so with all of this urgency, we are going to be challenged by the life of Jesus and the way he pushes forward. Now, the book of Mark is very interesting because every one of the gospels, there are four gospels, and each one of those gospels details the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. But each one structured a little differently. And, uh, but all of them have a point to where it says, this is when Jesus' ministry began. It's just a matter of how long does it take you to get to that point. The book of Luke, it takes him 183 verses to get to the beginning of Jesus' ministry. The book of Matthew, it takes 76 verses to get to his ministry. The book of John takes 34 verses to get to Jesus' ministry. The book of Mark, 13 verses. Boom, we're in, boom, here we go. And he jumps right in there and he says, we're taking you right into his ministry and we're getting in after it. And so that's what we're going to look at. We're going to look at Mark, we're going to look at chapter 1, verses 1 through 13, as he sets the table for Jesus and for his ministry. And he does it in 13 verses. Now, I want you to open your Bibles to Mark chapter 1. If you have one of our pew Bibles, it's page 836. 836, it's probably a crisp new page, because uh, no one may have looked in the book of Mark this year, since we've been, uh, these last four months since we've been in the worship center. Are you ready? Mark chapter one, and let's start, starting in the first verse, and he's going to take us right up to his ministry. 
Verse one, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, behold, I send my messenger before your face. Who will prepare your way? The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. And John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and he ate locust and wild honey. And he preached saying, after me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you <coughs> with the Holy Spirit. That was a cough. That was not a dramatic pause there, okay? Uh, verse 9. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately... He saw the heavens opening and the spirit descending on him like a dove and a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. And the spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness and he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan and he was with the wild animals and the angels were ministering to him. Now, this is the beginning of Mark and, uh, and there are a few things I want us to look at. Number one, I want you to see the plan. Here is the plan that God had, and in the first three verses, you see the plan that God has is that our hearts would be prepared for Jesus. When he starts, and he says, in the beginning of the gospel, he says, this is the beginning of the story. This is the beginning of the story of the gospel. The gospel is something that is good news, but it is good news anticipating some incredible event, such as the coming of a king. In the beginning, the gospel of Jesus Christ, Christ, that is the Messiah, that is the anointed one. And he says, the son of God, the divine nature of God. He starts out and he just lets you know right at the beginning, this is the story. This is the story of Jesus Christ who is the son of God, the gospel. It is good news. It is good news that God's son came to earth, lived a righteous, perfect life, died on the cross for our sins. And it's the good news that our sins can be forgiven and that we can belong to the family of God and that we can spend eternity with God in heaven. It is good news that death, sin, and hell have been conquered. And so he starts it out by saying, hey, I've got you some great news right here. And it is the story of Jesus Christ. He doesn't try to prove the divine origin. He doesn't try to build up arguments. He just simply states it. Here is the gospel, Jesus Christ, the son of God. And then in verses two and three, he kind of weaves a tapestry together of three different Old Testament passages. He takes excerpts of three different passages. Exodus chapter 23, verse 20, and he takes Malachi chapter three, verse one, and he takes, uh, and he takes Isaiah chapter 42, verse one. And so he takes segments of those passages and he puts them together because they all were tying to the same thing. Now I know at the very first it says it's written in Isaiah the prophet, just to let you know this, that during those days whenever anybody took excerpts from two or three different sources, they would always name the most famous or well-known author to say, hey, this is like Isaiah's prophecy when actually there were two or three others in there, but he was the most well-known, okay? So they understood exactly what he's doing. And he took these through three and as he put them together, 
it was a great reminder that, hey, this gospel about Jesus Christ, it didn't start when John the Baptist just got on the scene. God has planned this from the beginning of time. And you take what he talked about in Exodus, you talk about what he talked about in Isaiah, you talk about what he talked about in Malachi, you put them all together, there's been a plan from the beginning. And God has had a plan that he would send his son to die for our sins. And so then he comes to verse three, and at the end of verse three, he says, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. There was a custom during that day that you would send an officer ahead of any monarch or king and they would clear up all the ruts in the road. Wouldn't you love to have that today? And so they go and they find all the potholes and they, and they, they fill up the potholes and they move away the rocks and they set aside all the ruts and they make the paths straight so that when that king is coming, it is a smooth, smooth road, Okay. I'm working on that. I'm trying to get that before every Sunday that they come and clear all the potholes in the road uh, as we drive in. Wouldn't it be wonderful? And so this guy, this is what he does. He says, you prepare the way of the Lord. You make the path straight. And so what is happening is that John the Baptist is the one that's coming, and he is preparing the way. And he's preparing the way by leveling the ground, by calling all of Israel to repentance. He says, listen, when the king is getting ready to come, the son of God, you need to get your hearts ready. You need to understand that you are a sinner and that you need a savior. And if you can get to the point to where you understand you're a sinner and that you need a savior, your heart is going to be better prepared to receive this savior who will be coming. There is this eager anticipation of the king. And so uh, that's his plan. The plan is that we would prepare all of our hearts so that we're ready for Jesus to come, to recognize we're sinners and we're in need of a Savior. Well, that was the plan. Well, look at the preparation. He says, somebody's coming to prepare the way. How did John the Baptist prepare the way? Look at verse four. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for sins. This was his message. You need to repent. And we talked about repentance. I said, what does repentance mean? Repentance means to change direction, to turn a different direction. And so he's saying that you need to repent of your sins. Your life is heading in this direction and there has to come a point to where you recognize that this is wrong and then turn and say, I want to go in a different direction. The key to the word repentance is the turning. You could be here and say, hey, I know I'm going down the wrong road. I'm just gonna keep walking down this wrong road. I'm just hoping that everything's going to work out okay. It's not. Or you could keep walking down that wrong road and as you walk down that wrong road, you keep thinking, well, you know, maybe one day I'll turn. Maybe one day things will work out. Nothing until you make that decision to make that turn. And so he's preaching this message of repentance. And he says, you've got to get to that point to where you can make that turn. And it's not just a change of mental attitude, but it's a total commitment to say, I'm going to serve God. I'm going to live for him as a child of God. So he says, you need to repent. And then he says, he preached repentance and forgiveness. Forgiveness is God's response to your repentance. I'm traveling this direction. I understand that there are things that are wrong in my life and there's sin in my life and that I am so separated from God and I don't wanna keep living this because where this is gonna end up is not good. And I know it. 
It's just a matter of getting to the point where I said, um, I'm sick and tired of being sick and tired. And, and I'm just going to go on and make that turn. And then all of a sudden, you make that turn and say, I want to repent. And when you repent of that sin and say, I'm sorry for my sin, then he says, he's preaching forgiveness, that God will forgive your sins. The word forgiveness means to send away. That he'll take those sins and he sends them away. There's a verse in the book of Psalms that says, he'll take your sins and take them as far as the east is from the west. Can't get much further than that. And he will remember them no more. He'll send away those sins. Well, this is, this is what he's doing. This is the message of, of repentance and forgiveness that he is preaching. And, and so John the Baptist is constantly preaching this message. Okay, repentance and forgiveness. And then there's that model of humility. Because it's interesting in that he appeared in the wilderness and proclaimed a baptism of repentance. Baptism. Now, during that day, only people that got baptized were Gentiles. Okay, so just so we understand, we have Jews and we have Gentiles. Those who are Jews, those who are not Jews. And there were times when a Gentile wanted to come along and to be like the Jews. I agree, I want to serve your God. I, I agree with that. They call it proselytes, and they would come be a part of that. If you did that, you had to be baptized. And the reason they baptized you is because you were so defiled and when you go under the water, you come back up from the water, it would be that, that cleansing that you needed. But there weren't a lot of Jews <laughs> that were thinking they needed to be baptized. John the Baptist got in their face and he says, listen, everybody's the same that comes to God. Everybody's the same. And so uh, you need to be baptized too. And if you repent of your sin and in humility come and be baptized, then God will forgive you. We can keep moving on. And so there's this mode of humility that you see in what he's teaching, but also this model of humility into just who he is. Now, the response was incredible. It says the response is people were coming from all Judea and from Jerusalem. Now, don't lose that. They came from Jerusalem. He's at the Jordan River. Jerusalem to the Jordan River is 20 miles away. And Jerusalem is 4,000 feet elevation higher than Jordan River. People came from Jerusalem. They walked down the Judean hillside and they came 20 miles to come to the Jordan River to hear what John the Baptist had to say and were willing to make decisions to be baptized and turn around and walk back up the 20-mile journey. Heck, we got people here that won't park in the lower lot and walk up to the worship center. <laughs> I mean, Unreal. I mean, this was attractive. People were being drawn to this. And so as they're being drawn to this, he then comes up and he says, hey, don't make a big deal about me. He says, I am not worthy to like unstrap his sandal. Now during that day, you had Gentile servants and they would be the ones that maybe would take your sandals off and clean them. He says, uh-uh, I'm not even worthy to kneel down and unstrap the one who is coming. That's a humble man. And he said, listen, folks, I know we're excited out here in the Jordan River. I'm baptizing with water. But the one that's coming, he's going to baptize with the Holy Spirit. He's going up a whole new level. And what John the Baptist is saying is, you can go and have this change of life of repentance and to say, I'm willing to make a change. And there can be forgiveness. But when Jesus comes, when he baptizes you with the Holy Spirit, he's going to give you the power to live that new life out. Because when he puts the Holy Spirit in you, God's Spirit lives in you, he then empowers you to live the life that God desires you to live. 
so much more powerful than just the water baptism. And so you see the, the fact that, that they've got this, this plan that's set up. You see the preparation. And then in verses nine, starting in verse nine, we get introduced to the person, Jesus, the son of God. And so Jesus, the son of God, comes and he says in verse nine, and in those days, Jesus came from Nazareth to Galilee and he was baptized by John in the Jordan. And it, it doesn't tell you why he got baptism, got baptized and get into all the theological wonderings on this. He just said, hey, he got baptized. But what I do want to tell you, look what happened. And what happened was there are four different things that took place from this verse on. The first thing that you see is the heavens ripped open. The heavens ripped open open. Verse 10, and when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens opening. He saw the heavens opening. Now, every, uh, every gospel that talks about baptism says that the heavens were open, but no one uses the word that Mark uses. He uses a Greek word, which you, you could pronounce this like schizo. It's a word that means to torn or to tear or to rip apart. It's a real powerful word, and it says that it's immediately when Jesus came out of the water, the heavens were ripped apart. And when it was ripped apart, it let it be known there's no wall between heaven any longer. There's an opening between God and man. It ended this separation between God and humanity. He said the heavens were ripped open. So all I got to tell you is when Jesus got baptism, got baptized, all heaven breaks loose. I'm telling you, all heaven breaks loose. Things are torn apart. Things are torn open. All of a sudden, the Son of God is on earth, and he's walking, and he's loose, and you better hang on for the next three years. He's with us, and he's walking amongst us. And God has said, I'm turning him loose, and he's going on the earth. You better buckle up, folks, because here he comes. Woo, I like that personally. And so all of a sudden, the heavens, they ripped open. And then he heard the voice, the Holy Spirit is revealed. And it says the Holy Spirit descended on him like a dove. And this is like an anointing of God to say, hey, your ministry, we're ready to get started. It's a confirmation, it's anointing. Your ministry is getting ready to go. But let me tell you something else. When it says they like the Holy Spirit descended on him, it is like that the Holy Spirit hovered over him and you know, there's one other place in the Bible where it talks about the spirit hovering. Genesis chapter one, verse two. When you look at the very beginning of the creation, it says in Genesis one, two, that the spirit hovered over like the primeval waters before creation. And it was hovering over that, getting ready to signify that we've got a new beginning because the creation of the earth and the universe, all this is getting ready to take place. Guess what? Jesus is there and it says the spirit hovers over him God's saying, hey, there's a new beginning getting ready to take place. There's a new beginning. We're getting ready to see lives transformed for eternity. There is a new beginning that will impact all of humanity. And then he heard the voice of God. And he heard the voice of God and he says, you are my son with whom I'm well pleased. He heard the voice of God. You are my son. It's a direct quote from Psalm chapter 2. Verse seven, every Jewish person realized and believed that Psalm two was like a messianic psalm and it was talking about one day the Messiah would come. 
And yet God the Father quoted that verse. And just so you know, since all spirit was inspired by the Holy Spirit, he wrote it, okay? So God wrote it, now he's just quoting it. And he's saying, you are my son. So they're looking here, it's like a coronation of a king. And then he says, with whom I am well pleased. And it's a quote from Isaiah 42, 1, which deals all with the suffering servant. And so in those few words, you are my son with whom I'm well pleased. There's the coronation of a king and there's an ordination of a suffering servant. And it is like he is the king of kings, but he's getting ready to come and he's going to suffer. And he's going to suffer and die on the cross for our sins. And so he heard the voice of God, but then... He was heavily engaged in spiritual warfare. You know, it's interesting. Once Jesus came out of the baptism waters, Mark does not say that he stuck around and kind of chit-chatted with everybody else, saying, hey, water's a little cold this week, wasn't it? <laughs> what y'all think about that? It's pretty good. It's good to be with you. Hey, hope you're having a great day over here. He didn't stick around and get a selfie uh, with John the Baptist. Hey, let's get a quick picture over here. You know what it said? Immediately. What did it say? The Spirit immediately drove him into the wilderness. The Spirit immediately drove him into the wilderness. Now, I'm going to save parents just a little bit of time for some of you with younger children. If you are younger children, I want you to look up at me right now. When it says the Spirit drove him in the wilderness, that did not mean that it literally got in a car and drove him to the wilderness, okay? It just meant that he... It, pushed him towards that way. He began to lead him that way. And some of you look at me and say, why'd you bring that out? Because I've had parents have to call me on this later. And they would just laugh and say, my child is saying, what model of car did the Holy Spirit use when it drove him to the wilderness? It is that there was this, this push, this movement of God. And to where as he moved him to go into the wilderness, and when that happened, he decisively and obediently responded to God's will. And as the Holy Spirit began to move him to the wilderness, and as he moved him to the wilderness, this was 40 days, which was going to be a time of tempting and testing. And it was a time where he was going to prove faithful, and it was also a time in which he would be delivered, and it's a time that he would be ministered to. And it said that he was ministered to by the angels during those 40 days. And it was those 40 days that as soon as he finished up with that, he began his ministry. He's ready to go. And that's where you get to verse 14, which would be next week. So with all of this action, this activity, this quickly moving to set up the plan and to get us prepared and introduce us to the person of Jesus Christ, so what is the personal application for you and me? When we say, Mark, set, go, then what? Then what happens? What happens when you do that? You know, um, people say that life uh, is kind of like a race. And people will say it's not a sprint, but it's more like a marathon. And, and I agree with that. And, and I believe that life is kind of like every year you have a 365-day, or this year, 366, is that right? Uh, leap year. Uh, uh, like a 365-day course. And we'll just call it like a marathon course. And that you start in January, and for one year, you run this course. You run this course of life. And whenever you run marathons, they set up marathons with some different courses. Uh, there's one uh, marathon in England. It's called the Eastbourne Traxter uh, Marathon, and it's in Sussex, England. 
And it takes place at uh, a place sort of like Vestavia High School where you've got a 400-meter track, and you go to the 400-meter track, and you run 105 laps. Boy, does that sound fun. 105 laps around there. I went online, I checked it out, and I tried to say, what are the advantages? I was like, oh, some great advantages to it. Uh, you get to see your supporters uh, every lap uh, on there. I said, I just got to tell you, I'm not sure how many of my supporters want to sit there and watch me run 105 laps uh, around, around, that, around that track. But it's 105 laps. That's one. There's one, there's another set where they call, it's called the out and back. And what an out and back is, you start here, you run 13.1 miles, you hit a point, and then you turn around and you come back, okay? My favorite of all is the point to point, and what point to point is like when I went to Missoula, Montana and ran there is you get up early in the morning when it's still dark and you go, you get in a bus and they drive you to you don't know where and you're just riding in a bus and it's dark outside. You have no idea where you are. And then they come up and there's a little shed on the side of the road in the wilderness and they let you out of the bus and you just stand there for about 40 minutes or so. Everybody kind of gets ready. And then at that time, the sun begins to peak over the mountains and as it begins to peak over the mountains, then you look and you realize where you are. You're in this kind of like a canyon valley to where there's mountains in a crescent all around you. It's just beautiful. And then they say, Mark, set, go. And your job is to run back into the town of Missoula, 26.2 miles away. And as you're doing that run, and as the sun's coming up more and more, everything you're seeing is new. Now, there's some familiarities because we're all in the same region, you know, of that particular city and a particular area, but yet there's all these new things. You don't know what's around the corner. You don't know what's on the hill or down the hill and all that stuff, and there's a newness to it. See, I, I see that as what our life is. It's like the point to point, and when we start January, we got another 365 or 366 days, and then we start to, to run this race. And we start at the 1st of January, and God looks at us, and he says, on your mark, get set, go. And then the ball's in your court. What are you going to do? What are you going to do once he says go? When I've, as I've gone through this passage, there are two things that I feel that you need to do. And number one is this, choose the path of obedience. Choose the path of obedience. You get to choose the path that you will take. Choose the path of obedience. When you go to a marathon race and they shoot the pistol or yell for you to go, you got a choice. You can either run the course or you don't have to. You just go rogue. You can say, I don't want this. I'm going to head over here. You go rogue. Well, I'm going to tell you, when you go rogue and, and you go on a whole different path, there's a lot of things you forfeit. You forfeit the protection that you would have had along that 26.2 miles. You Forfeit all the encouragement that you would have had along that 26.2 miles. You forfeit all the refreshment, the hydration, the nutrition, the things that are necessary for you to make it through a 26.2 mile run. And when you finish that 26.2 miles, you also forfeit the rewards that come from finishing it because you went rogue. You decided to go a different path over there. And every year we have this opportunity. And when the year ends, you circle back up, get another option. What are you going to do? You know what Jesus did? He chose the path of obedience. God told him to be baptized. Guess what he did? He was baptized. 
And how do you know that's what he told him? Because immediately when he came out of the water, God said, you are my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. And as soon as it was over, guess what the Holy Spirit said? It's time to go to the wilderness. You know what he did? He went to the wilderness. He chose the path of obedience. Now, I want to encourage you this year, choose the path of obedience. And our church, as you heard Chad talk about, we are providing more resources than ever before to help all of us run this path. And you need to take advantage of what we've got back in that equipping center. It is going to help you in no matter what you're going to encounter during these 366 days of this particular year. And let me tell you the final thing, choose the path of obedience, pick up your pace. Pick up your pace. There is an urgency and an immediacy about Jesus' actions. The Holy Spirit immediately drove him to the wilderness, and there was a decisiveness in his going. And there was a sense of urgency because God says, this is your ministry's getting ready to start. We don't need you to lollygag over here for a, a, a couple of weeks or whatever, then do it. You got to do it right now. And once you finish this 40 days, boom, we're ready right into the ministry. There's an urgency and there's an immediacy about that. And I'm saying this year, 2020, hey, choose that path of obedience, but you need to pick up the pace. You need to pick up the pace. Get a little bit more serious about the spiritual disciplines and what it means to be living for the Lord. You see, we live in a culture that's consistently disting itself from Judeo-Christian norms and ethics, while at the same time marginalizing religious values. There is growing opposition to Christianity as a whole and to Christians individually. Children, teenagers, university students are being bombarded with mixed messages in the media and the classroom that go counter to the Christian values that we as parents and grandparents are teaching in our homes. We have to pick up the pace. The foundational pillars of our society and our 244-year-old republic, such as marriage, freedom of speech, sanctity of life, are being attacked and chipped away in sizable chunks. There is an urgency. You have to pick up the pace. We all have friends, family members, teammates, neighbors, coworkers who are lost without Christ, and they will spend an eternity separated from God unless you and me tell them about Jesus and his offer of salvation. Every year in the United States, 2.8 million people die. And when you begin to do the ratio, the ratio is that there will be about 850 people out of 100,000 that will die. If you want to drive it down to where we are sitting in this room today, we have close to 2,000 people in here. That means that 17 of you will not see 2021. There is an urgency. We have to pick up the pace. There's an urgency to take steps to save that marriage that is teetering, to restore that relation, that friendship that has been racked with misunderstanding and hurt, to intervene and protect that friend or family member from traveling down that road of addiction. There is an urgency, and we need to pick up the pace. You got to pick up the pace. Now, you hear me clearly. I am not asking you to add more stuff to your frenetic schedule. Not at all. What I'm saying is let's all take a look at our frenetic schedule and put some priorities on there and say, if I'm going to pick up the pace spiritually, it may mean that I give up something else. 
There may be other things in my life that are taking precedence, that are keeping me from doing these things that you're talking about. That's what I'm saying. That's what I'm saying. I'm gonna choose the path of obedience. And this year when I choose that path of obedience, it's not gonna be the same old six and seven. I'm going to pick up the pace. And I'm gonna pick up the pace and serve my Lord. I'm not gonna overdo my business. I'm gonna reprioritize, pick up the pace. It's the first of January. On your mark, get set, go. What will your response be? Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we can look at the gospel of Mark and see such an intensity and an urgency uh, that is shown in this book. And we can just look at your own son and see the immediacy, the blessed immediacy (coughs) that he had. And Lord, I ask that um, you speak to each one of our hearts. And uh, Lord, help us to choose that path of obedience and slumber us and, and awaken us from our slumber that this spiritual slumber of just trying to drag through life, trying to check enough boxes just to feel good about ourselves, when actually, Lord, we should be looking to you and to your standards. Help every one of us, Lord, me included, to pick up our pace. Let's be stronger in our walk with you. And Lord, I pray that for each person here, that you will place something on their heart that they can look at and say, you know what? I kind of need to turn, turn the burner up on that one. I need to pick up the pace. Lord, we love you, and we thank you that your spirit moves within us and help guide us to be people who choose the path of obedience. For it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.